I wonder what your favorite Bible verse is. Many of us will have a favorite, a well-loved passage that means a lot to us. Uh, I have quite a few. One of my favorites is Psalm uh, 46. I share that in common with John. Uh, but another great Bible passage is one I used in my early days of being a Christian as a tender 13-year-old at an evangelistic outreach. I just completed a week-long evangelism course, and at the end of the week, I was to enthusiastically share the good news of Jesus from a Bible I'd hardly read, let alone understood. And on our way to the meeting, I went up to our pastor who had trained us that week, and I said to him, where in the Bible is my favorite passage? I can't find it. And he, of course, was quite confused. And why was he confused? Well, you see, the passage I asked him uh, that I couldn't find was the poem, Footprints. It was one of my favorite Bible passages. And I was going to be using it in my message. And, of course, the reason he was confused is that Footprints, as you know from the laughter, is not in the Bible. It's a lovely little poem, of course, maybe not entirely theologically correct, but a nice little poem anyway. Sometimes what we think is in the Bible is not actually there. Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a similar problem. Psalm 110 may well have been a favorite passage for them as they looked forward to a coming Messiah who would defeat their enemies. However, their expectations of this Messiah was wholly different to that of God's expectation. Now, if I think that if God had a favorite passage of the Bible, I think Psalm 110 would also fit that pretty well. Why do I say that? Well, it's the most quoted psalm, let alone the most quoted Bible passage in the New Testament. It's quoted 27 times, uh, either directly or indirectly in the New Testament. And if we've got to nail it down to just a verse, well, Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted 20 times alone. Now, as we come to the events of Easter, we see that well, there is conflict over the meaning of this psalm. What does Messiah look like? How would he rule? And how would he save us? Let's pray together as we come to this God's word. Oh, Father God, this is your word. We see how important it is as you've used it throughout the New Testament. Lord, I don't feel like I've done this passage justice. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would work uh, in our hearts and in our minds. Magnifying Jesus Christ before us, that we might see him for all his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump right in. The first thing I want you to see, and to keep your Bibles open, is that the Messiah is our King Jesus. Now, in your Bibles, you'll see in well, just above verse 1, the superscription that reads a psalm of David. And we might be tempted to skip that part, but really it should be included in verse 1. It should be a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord. So whose Lord is it? It's David's Lord. More than any other psalm, it is important to note that Psalm 110 is a psalm written by King David. 
And it's as we reflect on the greatness of King David that we understand the greater king, Jesus. Now, David, filled with the Spirit of God as he writes down Scripture in the form of the psalm, hears this cosmic divine conversation. The Lord, which is Yahweh, which we specifically know through the New Testament as God the Father, well, he speaks to another Lord. This Lord is Adonai, David's Lord, David's Master. And this is to recognize that this individual, this Adonai, this master is an individual who is greater than King David. David is the servant in this picture. And so what takes place is a conversation between God the Father and his Messiah, King Jesus, in front of the mortal king, David. Now the Pharisees in the New Testament understood this psalm in a different way. If you turn to Matthew chapter 22, 41 to 46, I've got it on the screen for us to help us. Jesus illuminates this passage for us and for the Pharisees. So it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now this passage in Matthew takes place somewhere between Palm Sunday that we think about today and the crucifixion on Friday. And Jesus has been talking about uh, the resurrection, explaining the resurrection, uh, and then he asks them a question for a change. He asked them what they think about the Christ. And their answer is that, well, the Christ, the Messiah, the king that is to come that will save them from, the, from their enemies, well, he's the son of David. Now, we know that Jesus is the son of David. We, we've seen him recognize that title a few times throughout the Gospels. And so their answer is technically correct, except that they've not recognized Jesus as the son of David, and neither have they understood the nature of this king. See, they're thinking a king like David, a, a second David, a, a David junior, a, a lesser David, who will bring in the glory days of Israel, the glory days of the past. But Jesus asks them, well, how can David call his son, this junior David, Lord? Now, Jesus is both a physical descendant of David, therefore his son, but he is also the living Messiah in front of David. This isn't one who would just come after David. This is one who has come before David. And we see in this passage in Psalm 110, verse 1, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus in one sentence. The Lord says to my Lord, says to David's Lord. You see, David could not call anyone after him Adonai, except for the one who was truly greater. This would have to be a better king than David, a greater king, one who sits at the right hand of God. Now, to be at God's right hand is to, is to share the same power and authority and honor as God. And so this passage wants to make it absolutely clear to us that the Messiah won't be a mortal man under David, 
But the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. So here's some implications of what it means for the Son of David to sit at the right hand of God from the New Testament. We're going to just fly through these really quickly. Peter says in Acts 2 that, that David did not ascend into heaven, but that Jesus did ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews says that no angel has ever been offered to sit at the right hand of God. This position alone is reserved for King Jesus. Again, in Acts, we read how although Jesus is killed by men, God exalted him as leader and savior. Paul in Romans 8.34 says the same thing, but he adds that at the right hand of God, Jesus intercedes for us to the Father. So if Satan accuses you of your sin, your salvation is secure as Jesus speaks on our behalf at the right hand of God. Isn't that good news? Again, in Hebrews, the writer speaks of the finished task. Jesus is the only priest that sits. And as Jesus is invited to sit after his work of salvation on the cross, his enemies will be brought to sit at his feet, humbled and defeated. Now, the rest of the psalm is, is going to be drawing out some of these implications for us, but I, I want you to be clear about where Jesus is right now. He is right now, post-death, post-resurrection, sitting at the right hand of God, but he is not idle. He isn't resting. He is ruling from his throne in verse 2. Take a look. And while Satan still prowls around and accuses the saints and defies the living God as the prince of this world, Jesus is ruling. And his scepter goes out from Zion. It goes out from the heavenly throne, the kingdom of God, and he rules over all, including his enemies. Now look down at verse 3. Verse 3 is, is actually quite tricky. Uh, almost every word in verse 3 is, is different in almost every translation. Uh, there's no single agreement between commentators on how this verse should be translated. And that kind of becomes an issue when you have to preach on it, especially if you don't read Hebrew. But one of the things I'm trying to do as I'm looking at this passage is I'm trying to figure out how the psalm speaks about the work and ministry of King Jesus, who currently sits at the right hand of God. And so I think a good way of thinking about that is the way that the gospel advances into uh, the world. So let's look at verse 3. Um, so I've got the ESV up there. You'll have the NIV down, uh, down in front of you. So this is what the ESV says. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours and you'll notice there's quite a, uh, a few differences there in in the niv um, just some notes on the translation uh, your people will offer themselves freely or your troops will be willing as i think you have um, is literally your people will be a free will offering funny enough all the commentators agree on that it's a free will offering, but none of them write that. Um, and I just think that's a much, why don't you just say that? I think that just helps us so much. Uh, if you look down at uh, from the womb of the morning, or you have 
Uh, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Bible imagery, morning signifies beauty. Um, that, that, that beauty that, uh, that, that comes out of the darkness, that breaks through the darkness, light floods into the world. This is something that we need to be looking forward to. And young men or, or youth, they, they symbolize strength and endurance throughout the Bible. So uh, we'll get to that in a moment. The, the NIV keeps the concept of, of battle, um, and that's not a wrong translation. Uh, it's just trying to figure out how, how do we read this. But if we keep it at the NIV's translation, you can understand then why the Jews, if they, if they read it that way, how they longed for their Messiah to, to come, to, to conquer Rome and to, and to establish Jerusalem as a city of world power once again. Uh, and the Jews, they were ready. They were ready to be volunteers. They were ready to offer themselves up for, for battle. And we see that in AD 66 as they do rise up against Rome. But that's also why I want us to be careful about using that imagery here. You see, Jesus will come again. He, he will come riding on a white horse, and he will have victory over his enemies. But right now, what does verse 1 and 2 say? He is on the throne, and he holds out his scepter. He's ruling from the throne. He's not on the white horse yet. So I want to put, to you, put it to you today that the scepter in, of Jesus in verse 2 is his gospel going forward. And on the day of his power, after his resurrection, he ascends into heaven and he sends forth his Holy Spirit to regenerate the hearts of the believers. And as the power of the gospel goes out into all the world, clothing uh, sinners in his righteousness, those holy garments arrayed in splendor, the gospel goes out as uh, the beauty of the morning, breaking through the darkness of unbelief and in the strength uh, takes hold of sinners' hearts as God's people who are regenerated by the Spirit as they hear the message of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus, and then they give themselves over as free will offerings. Does that make sense? They realize that there is nothing else to give but themselves, and that is all that Jesus wants. Now, don't let this just wash over you. What kind of king do you worship? Friends, you don't worship a king of human imaginations. This is not a king you could ever expect. He is different. He is greater like no other king before, and no king could come after him to match his greatness. This is King Jesus whose mighty scepter stretches out from heaven and sovereign, sovereignly proclaims, I am king. And so my prayer this morning is that his spirit would awaken us that we would take off our self-appointed crowns and we would come to the greater king, King Jesus, that even David, the greatest mortal king, calls Lord. And he will save us from our sins and clothe us in righteousness forever his. When I jump to sin there, well, how will King Jesus save us from our sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at verse 4 together as we move to our second point. Jesus, our priest. So verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we move now from a scene of the throne room to a scene of, of the temple. But this temple isn't a building. It's Jesus himself. As we again come closer to the crucifixion, um, 
After many false witnesses, finally the charge that he's brought against Jesus as he stands before the Sanhedrin at this sham of a trial is that he said he would destroy the temple and build it again in three days. So in Matthew 26, I've got it on the screen there. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, that's a lie. John's gospel gives us the truth. Jesus, after throwing the money changes out of the temple, responds, Destroy this temple, um, meaning himself, and he will raise it up. And later the disciples understood what Jesus meant. He was the temple. The way to God is through Jesus. And every temple, friends, needs a priest. Jesus is that priest, the high priest of his temple. And so the Holy Spirit enters the lives of new believers and your bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is your priest. And as we've seen already, Jesus sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf as the great priest. And because he sits, the work is done, our salvation is secure. Therefore, God will not change his mind. He has sworn an oath. The priest Jesus is able to intercede for us for eternity as a great priest forever. So I've got some verses in Hebrews. Again, we're just going to fly through these verses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 19 to 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Behind the curtain, where's the curtain in the temple, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews seven twenty three to 24 The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And Hebrews 10, 11 to 12 And every high priest stands, sorry, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices with which never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our salvation is secure as Jesus sits at the right hand of God. We see also that he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? Well, Melchizedek is a very strange character in the Bible. He appears out of nowhere. And he disappears again. We never see him again until the New Testament when his name is brought up. His name means king of righteousness. And he is a, a king of Salem around the time of Abraham. And Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And Salem is where Jerusalem originates. Now, Abraham and Melchizedek first meet after Abraham rescues his cousin Lot. Uh, he defeats the kingdom of Sodom and his allies at uh, Kerdoleoma. I think I said that right. Uh, when you come to names, you can't say. You just say it confidently, and no one can argue with you. That's really how it works. Uh, Melchizedek presents bread and wine to Abraham and his tired men as a sign of friendship. And then what he does is he blesses Abraham in a priestly fashion in the name of El Elyon, meaning God Most High or God the Strong One. And he praises God for giving Abraham victory over battle. A victory in the battle. 
Abraham's response is to present Melchizedek with an offering, a tithe, which was a tenth of all the items he had won through the battle. And so by Abraham giving this tithe, he is recognizing that Melchizedek is a priest who ranks even higher than the patriarch Abraham. Now Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ. This means that as we look at the character and actions of Melchizedek, we see a Christ-like figure that points us forward to what God is going to provide in Jesus. And so in Melchizedek's case, we see that he is both the king of righteousness and a king of priest, uh, king of peace and a high priest. In Jesus, we see the, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the ultimate high priest. But like an advert, but wait, there's more. Our passage says that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Well, why not the order of Aaron? Why not the order of Levi? These were the priestly line that God had ordained. Why is it not in their order? Because as we've already read in Hebrews, well, they are men who died. What we have in Melchizedek is a man of mystery. A man who appears and then disappears. We know nothing else of him. We're not told where he comes from or that he even dies. He also has no one to pay his tithes to. Abraham ties to him, and ordinarily a Levite priest would also give a tenth of what they receive, but who does Melchizedek give his tithe to? Abraham is his inferior. Thus Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. As Melchizedek was a priest like no other, well, Jesus is a priest like no other. Friends, in Jesus we have a priest who is eternal who is not like any other priest. He sits at the right hand of God and he speaks on our behalf. And when God the Father asks God the Son why he should let us into his kingdom, Jesus says, because they are mine. I have died for them. I have taken their punishment. I have become their sacrifice. I have dealt with their sins. Friends, Jesus our King is a priest like no other. He is able to deal with your sin as the King of Righteousness you will be made righteous. You will be clothed with those clothes of splendor. As the king of peace, you will have peace with God. So come to him today. Find forgiveness and eternal life because Jesus has victory over your sin, over death, and over Satan. And that's our third and final point this morning. Jesus, our victor. We've been in the throne room. We've seen Jesus the King. We've gone to the temple. Well, now we're going to the battlefield. And David responds to God in these next few verses. He responds to him in worship and he says, follow on with me, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, I don't know about you, but at first reading, you might read that and go, Oh, the Lord is at my right hand. But this is David responding to, to, to Yahweh. He's saying, Jesus is at your right hand. He's learned from what he's just seen and he's responding back to God in worship. Don't make the mistake of applying something to you that is applied to Jesus. 
the Lord is at our right hand. We do see that at other places in Scripture. For example, Psalm 16. But in this psalm, we're thinking about the Messiah. The, these next few verses give us the context for that. He will shatter kings. He will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the stream. And the reason I say all that is not just to be clever, but because there'll be some who go, well, we don't believe in the Trinity. We don't believe that Jesus is Lord. And so they'll come to that and they'll say, no, no, this, this Messiah, he's not God. This is, this is, uh, the Messiah being at your right hand. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus, the Son. Now, as we come to these last verses, we, we see some frightening imagery. We see corpses and, and shattered heads, and it's not nice imagery. But what I want to do for us as we, as we come to an end this morning, as we look forward ahead to Friday's crucifixion and the glorious morning of Easter Sunday, that we see this battlefield as good news. That Jesus has victory on the battlefield. Let us not forget that our ultimate enemy is, is not our neighbors, but of sin and death and Satan. Sure, those who do not bow the knee to King Jesus will face judgment. But there is a greater enemy here. King David defeated mortal enemies with God's help. Abraham defeated mortal enemies with God's help. No, this isn't about us. This is between our great King Jesus and the great enemy of God, Satan. Now, verse 6 in the NRV keeps it as, as an earthly battle. But the ESV has a, another option in the footnotes, and I, and I think it's a good option. It says he will shatter the chief, just singular, the, the chief. In your version, you might just say the ruler, the ruler of the earth. Friends, there is a great enemy who God will have victory over. Earlier, we thought about Melchizedek as a type of Christ. And all throughout the scriptures, we see that these types, that they point to Jesus and his work. And they are not by accident, these types. It isn't just men with imaginations looking these things up. These are, these are types that Jesus, uh, throughout eternity, has put in place, pointing people to him. The first time we see a promise of Jesus is right back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God, talking to Satan, says, You will strike his heel. And he will crush your head. This is the first promise that God makes to restore the world through the coming of his son, defeating Satan and sin. Friends, Jesus is our victor. At the cross, Satan strikes at Jesus' heel, but Sunday is coming. In Romans 16.20, Paul writes that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Jesus will have victory over Satan. Jesus will crush the chief. Jesus will crush his head. He is our great victor who wins for us salvation and intercedes for us to the Father as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father where he will rule over our lives forever as our sovereign king who loves and cherishes us for eternity. And we will do the same. And forever we will sing Hosanna in the, in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Let's pray.